0: Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I'm your host, Amanda Bruce. Today's episode is a replay of a Ministry Monday episode from exactly one year ago. On March 16th, 2020, I released an interview with Stephen Warner. Now, Stephen is the founder of the Notre Dame Folk Choir, and he currently ministers at the Newman Center for Faith and Reason in Dublin, Ireland. He and I spoke over Zoom in the early days of a global shutdown due to a growing pandemic called COVID 19. In many ways, our conversation could have taken place last week, and the elements of uncertainty, hesitancy, and safety still ring true. But our conversation that day was much more than just the pandemic. In the days leading up to the Feast of St. Patrick, we discussed the Catholic Church and its joys and struggles in Ireland. It's a great episode, and it's one that bears repeating. Lastly, we hope that you'll join us for a live-streamed broadcast of Mass for the Feast of St. Patrick from the Newman Centre for Faith and Reason in Dublin, Ireland. We'll be streaming that broadcast this Wednesday, March 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on NPM's YouTube channel. Links to the Mass and our YouTube channel can be found in the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org and on our main website, npm.org. We hope you'll join us and pray with us on the evening celebrating the Feast of St. Patrick. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I'm your host, Amanda Bruce. This week, we have a really exciting episode to bring to you, and it's Genesis began back in the fall. We had the chance to interview Stephen Warner, Associate Director for the Notre Dame Newman Center for Faith and Reason in Dublin, Ireland. While at the time we were talking about St. John Henry Newman, Steve mentioned in the interview that he could discuss the Catholic Church in Ireland further. And here's a clip from that episode. Have you had any reflections on how America perceives Ireland, like culturally, musically? ecclesially versus what really is the reality that you've had once since you've lived there?
1: Yeah, um, I would say that's a profound question and we could probably do, uh, and if you want to, we can, a second interview on something like that.
0: On the week of the Feast of St. Patrick, we are here to take him up on that offer. Not only that, Steve was gracious enough to provide two unreleased songs from his upcoming album, Easter in Ireland. Today's episode will feature the world premieres of these two songs. Now, we will play them both in their entirety, and so for this reason, the episode will be a bit longer than the 20-minute episodes we've been doing lately, but we think that it is well worth it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of Song and Reflection. Now, just one contextual note – Originally, this episode was to be recorded in person, which Steve alludes to in this episode. But sadly, my plans fell through. Therefore, I woke up bright and early and spoke to Stephen via Skype. Ah, the benefits of technology. Stephen joins us today from his office on St. Stephen's Green in Dublin, Ireland. Good morning, Steve. How are you this morning?
1: Good morning, Amanda. From the um, from the middle of um, Dublin, where um, I can tell you that St Patrick's Day has just been canceled, um, and so it's a it's a little bit like you'd be in New York City the day before Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden they decide there's not going to be a Macy's. So um, it's a strange kind of time right now for everybody in the world.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, we're still going through with our St Patrick's Day liturgy, which over here, because it's the patronal feast, it's a holy day of obligation. Um, we're still going through with it, at least as of today. But I, to be honest with you, we haven't printed our liturgical programs yet because it might just get canceled. Wow. So we're just kind of hanging in the balance right now here on St. Stephen's Green. So good morning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite the atmosphere for St. Patrick's Day. I'm sure it's unparalleled.
1: Well, actually, it's not, to be honest with you. Um, really? There are still um, people in Ireland that can remember the last time it was canceled. And it was canceled in 2001, with um, uh, the threat of foot and mouth disease. Um, you can, might, might recall that in England and, um, and Ireland as well, because it was both based on um, cattle herds. Um, and so that, that year, the St. Patrick's Day parade was cancelled as well. So it's a it's really kind of a, a terrible thing because you think about um, there are high school and college marching bands from around the world that come to march in this parade. Mm-hmm. And here we are a week away. No doubt these groups spent years fundraising for this trip. So it's um it's really uh, on a local level. It's a terrible um, it's a terrible dynamic to be dealing with. But it's also something that's rather unifying for everybody. Um, there are the jokes about Purell and hand sanitizers, san- hand sanitizers um, and they've made their way into the liturgy as well, which in some ways is rather quaint, but it's also <laughs> really funny. So, yeah. Anyway, so there it is. Wow, wow, wow,
0: wow. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that it made its way into the liturgy, because originally our call that you and I had scheduled was to dig a little bit deeper about the Catholic Church in Ireland, and so... Um that's kind of where I want to start, if that's okay with you. So, Steve, you've been working in Dublin now for quite some time. And in our last conversation on Ministry Monday, of course, we talked about your visit to Rome during the canonization of St. Right. St. Um, Newman. And so you mentioned on the call, you said, you know, I-, I could just do an entire talk with you just about the role of the Catholic Church in Ireland and the struggles that it's had. And so that's where I kind of want to pick up today, if that's okay with you. And so as we start, what are some of the main things and reflections that you've had working in your position in the Catholic Church in Dublin?
1: So I guess what I would say in response to that is, um, first of all, everything that I want to talk about today, and there are going to be challenges more than likely. They're said with a tremendous amount of love and respect for the Irish people, because we're all in this. We're deeply in it. Um, And I can say that um, the Irish church is probably not where the United States church is in terms of certain things. So, for instance, I think they're finally now getting up to speed with where things where things are in terms of dealing with the sexual crisis. It's taken a tremendous amount of courage and a lot of vulnerability for the Catholic Church here to be able to do that in the midst of an unrelenting criticism from the secular press. So I think that that is something that's been um, that's been done effectively and pretty much uh, as we would say over here, top to toe. But the thing that hasn't happened yet, which is going to be, I think, for the next um, for the next Archbishop of Dublin to be dealing with, is church closures. Now. Mm. Now, in America, you can see patterns of this. This happened in Chicago. It happened in the Archdiocese of Boston, where the first thing that got—it was a one-two punch in some ways. The first thing that had to have be handled, obviously, and desperately, were concerns about the sexual crisis um, and abuse. But the second thing that happened on the, literally on the tails, on the coattails of all of that earth-shaking um, work was church closures. And in Ireland, um, that is, is, we, we have 200 churches in the Archdiocese of Dublin, and they're just beginning to scratch the surface of that. The average age of presbyters in the Archdiocese of Dublin is late 60s, and as within America, vocations are few and far between right now. So the idea of being a witness over here, this is, some people think that we're over here to do liturgical music, and it's very true that we are. Um, but there is another thing that's going on here, which in some ways is unspoken, but the the more profound thing, which is the witness of lay and female ministry going on, um, that I honestly think America can bring as a gift uh, and work side by side with Ireland to help solve some of these issues in the church.
0: Can you give an example of some of the advancement of women in lay leadership that you've been seeing?
1: Well, uh, I, I'd say, first of all, that um, where my wife and I live, we li- had you come over here if your tour hadn't been cancelled <laughs> um, uh, you would see that my wife and I actually live in the presbytery attached to Newman Church. The fact that a married couple are actually living in a priest's residence is a huge thing. Hmm. I think we're the only we're the only couple in the archdiocese, maybe in the Republic of Ireland. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but I'm pretty sure in the Archdiocese of Dublin. That's a, that's a ground shift. Um, that's a huge change for people to realize that a male and a female married couple are working professionally in ministry and could occupy a priest residence. So that's a that's a huge thing. I also think that um, manuth University, which is now the only pontifical university in the aisles. Um, manuth is really starting to grapple with how can we enhance, make available to people um, courses and um, and credits and graduate degrees in ministry. Now, this has been going on in America for a long time. And for people who are critical of the American Catholic Church, Lucian Des once said, and I absolutely agreed with him. God God rest his soul. Lucian Des said, the American Catholic Church has a lot to be proud of. They're really on the cutting edge of a lot of things. And one of them is lay leadership. And I completely agree with that. That's something that has to happen over here in Ireland. And it has to happen, I think, robustly and aggressively over the next decade or two.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you see that as taking a foothold? Is that something that you believe is a priority you'll be able to see and watch progress?
1: I don't see it yet, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, I see it. I, I, well, I shouldn't say that. I see it um, in small ways, but I don't see it in a way that's robust enough yet to um, really attack um, the, the crisis that's going on um, archdiocesan-wide. Okay. So there, I think that creative thinking and, um, and creative approaches to some of this is going to have to happen. Mm-hmm. One of those creative approaches that we're working on right now is the program called the House of Bridget, which is an opportunity, it's a postgraduate gap year, one year, two years, of young men and women um, from the United States to come over and actually help out in roles of lay ministry, mostly in terms of music, catechesis, and and liturgical presence. But that program, which was started actually out of the Notre Dame Folk Choir, um, started out with representatives just from Notre Dame, spread to St. Mary's, moved to um, also to Marquette, Loyola, Chicago, University of Maryland, Florida State, now over to San Diego. And most recently, um, we've had people um, volunteer from Boston College and, um, and St. Thomas in Minneapolis. So that's an interesting program, but it's one of what I think could be a real, um, a real gift of the spirit to see if that could happen on a more robust level. Um, and not just spearheaded by the University of Notre Dame. We're going to have to think out of the box. And Europe, in some ways, I think it gives us answers for some of these things. Who could have foreseen 40 years ago that Tizay would be what it is now? You know, there's clearly the work of the Holy Spirit is going on in a situation like that. I think we need to pay attention to those sort of grassroots programs and movements that are going on in Europe and, um, and cultivate them, as well as looking at things like postgraduate opportunities for people who are in the States, who are interested in theology and ministry, who can come over and help here and be an, uh, an assist. Think about how much, how much evangelization took place in the United States as a result of Ireland. Now it's time to give back. Um, Mm. so that's, I think, where we are right now.
0: Okay. Okay, great. So let's talk, if you don't mind, about a topical, very time-sensitive, time-appropriate question. So, of course, you and I are recording this episode the week before St. Patrick's Day, and we've already alluded to that. Would you mind just talking a little bit about St. Patrick and his role in Irish culture? Because I'm sure (laughs) this goes almost without saying... That I'm sure it's mixed sacred and secular, but what are some of the special things maybe in the church that you have seen to honor St. Patrick during this week of the Feast of St. Patrick?
1: I think the first thing that needs to be said about St. Patrick is that first of all, he was a victim of human trafficking. Um, uh, sold as a slave. He struggled with his vocation had a vision when he was a young man and the Irish were calling back to him. It took him years to sort that out. It's a very human story. Um, if you actually go into the confessions of St. Patrick. And one of the things in that dream, that vision, that disturbing vision that came to Patrick was actually a model of ministry that we all hold very close to us over here in Dublin. And that is his the admonition from the Irish that said to Patrick, come and walk among us again. Um, The admonition wasn't come and lead us. It wasn't come and take charge. It was come and walk among us. That model, which is an Emmaus model, I think really strikes hard and at the core of what our attitude should be when we come over and work. St. Patrick's Day is a keystone for that, obviously. um, And we pour a lot of time and energy into it. Musically, it's like working in the ultimate of of, um, toy stores. (laughs) I mean, I'm working with world class, um, a string quartet from the National Symphony, uh, an amazing flautist. Um, we oftentimes will bring in harp and and pipes. Um, so for me on that day, it's like, yo, it's Christmas all over again, and <laughs> and I have a great, great time with it. But I will, be, I will not be so naive as to say, look, um, St. Patrick's Day in some ways is on the ropes. Um, Over here because if you walk along Grafton Street or you walk along Nassau Street and you see the pubs and The pubs have big signs on them because they're trying to get people in and it doesn't say happy St. Patrick's Day. It says happy Paddy's Day Um, Now that's a small change but it's a significant change because in some ways the secular secularization of Mardi Gras is what we're beginning to see over here is that it becomes a week of of uh bacchanalia you know drunken behavior and people come from around the world just to celebrate that whatever that means Um, and so to bring the sense of the sacred back to the day i think in some ways is a real witness that the catholic church has to do and they need to do it joyfully um and they want to do it joyfully to bring the best of what we have inspirationally um, and musically and liturgically to the faithful on St. Patrick's Day in the Catholic Church, we experience crowds at Newman Church that would be akin to Christmas and Easter, and that's appropriate for the day, because it's a day of great pride um, and a great day of identity and a day to, to own your faith. So um, for us, we just dress it up as we would um, and as with as much energy as we possibly can. But I am very, very keenly aware of the fact that the secular tide is out there, and, you know, we talk about that a lot uh, in a post-Christian world. I think you could say those words are hang around a lot. And you really feel that in Europe. So um, for us right now, it's an opportunity to celebrate the faith, do it in a, a way that's colorful and joyful and musical um, and, and a, a day of great, uh, a great pride in a civilization.
0: Is there anything you believe that we can do in the United States to honor St. Patrick a little bit more? Anything on the top of your head?
1: Well, I think musicians specifically, because I know that a lot of musicians will be listening to this. Right. I think to, to approach St. Patrick's Day um, with a real sense of cultural identity. Um, I'll make an, a, a, a comparison for you here back at the university of notre dame over the years i spent a generation or more than a generation of my life um, working on the feast of guadalupe um, so uh, for guadalupe um, i had to i had a i had a great instrument to work with the guitar um, so and was conversant and, and proficient in it but i didn't know the depth of repertoire that i really needed to know and spent so to actually take that feast on and to enter into it um, with all of the mystery of Tepeyac and and let that imbue my musical choices. I think that's a challenge to American church musicians to look at what repertoire might be out there that's really honestly Irish and not O'Danny Boy, if you know what I mean. I do. Uh, yeah, the, the the repertoire from the Irish, the styles of music that are here, um, the lyricism, the beautiful lyricism of their tunes, these are things that are worthy of bringing to the liturgy and really letting that be, um, the, the, if you will, the colors of the day. Americans think that they know Ireland, and that usually reduces to O'Danny Boy, corned beef and cabbage, and green beer. and um, And I say that kind of half-lovingly because that's where I was, too. But it's the tip of a of the iceberg of a very complicated political, theological, and um, and historical saga, um, and musically and in terms of storytelling, there's no better there's no better country to explore than the, than the Irish. So as we're heading into St. Patrick's Day, for me, it's an opportunity to literally plunge in in this culture. Not that I don't do it every week, because every week we're trying to synthesize some of the writing of the Irish, their old hymns, some of the Shannos tradition that's there, and to see that as a a way to be even more diverse from what we're doing at University Church right now. So it's a great opportunity to embrace the culture, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think for American church musicians, this is also a tremendous opportunity to go outside of your known comfort zone culturally and learn some new music.
0: I think that provides a great transition for us to talk about some of the music that you're going to be releasing soon. Um, Would you mind sharing with the listeners a little bit about the musical project you've been working on?
1: Sure. Well, thank you for that question. I've been extremely fortunate to be working with GIA on a new recording um, called Easter in Ireland, or in its um in its Irish version oncoscanada it didn't start start out um, being an album for Easter, but as we looked at, it was a very organic process that we were working through myself and Michael Silhevi. and as we started pushing it through, the best thing about an album in my mind, a collection of music is it needs to have a tight focus, a tight um, vision of what's going to be presented in it. And it really did seem that it was going to be um, um, a Pascal um, a Pascal album. So um, the idea of having a tight focus on Easter, the Easter season, um, and um, and the Easter vigil uh, to have a tight focus with that, and second, to um, to really kind of delve into an Irish sound. Um, so the opportunity to work with, if you will, the, the sonic palette of SATB. Um, but also with the ball run, the Irish drum, um, to work with Irish voices, which are just phenomenal. Uh, this has been a great a great thing for us. A whole new palette. And so I'm very, very grateful to to GIA. That album is coming out, um, I'd say, within the next three or four weeks from GIA, called Easter in Ireland. So, and it's coming out at a perfect time, right around St. Patrick's Day and just a few weeks before Easter. So we're hoping that it's going to um, it's going to generate a lot of excitement.
0: Yeah. Now, of course you're in Ireland though. Where did you record the album?
1: We recorded it here at university church. And the interesting thing about that is, um, you'd think, oh my gosh, you're in the middle of the city center. Where are the ambulances? You're right on a major high, uh, highway street, right? But the crazy thing is Newman University Church has an um a long, long atrium which actually shields it from all the music or the not the music, the the commotion of the of the street. The only thing we had to deal with, believe it or not, in recording live in the church were seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't. I mean, you can't deal with it except that, and for some reason, every day about four o'clock in the afternoon, they decided they were going to descend. It was like Hitchcockian. It was crazy. (laughs) Uh, But we just had to wait for them to be on their way. And um, we actually didn't experience hardly any interruptions. Uh, And Newman Church has such an unbelievable acoustic. It was just a joy to record in there.
0: Oh, that's great. And. I'm so grateful that you have given us two tracks that we will be premiering here in the podcast. And I have to tell you, I've listened to them in advance. and I know I told this to you before, but I think they are really, really great. I I just am so, so excited about the project. Um, Is there any specific song you would want to bring to the listeners just to give a little bit of context or maybe one that's particularly near and dear to your heart?
1: Well, there are two pieces that I sent you, and I'll tell you a little bit about each of them. Um, the first one is Psalm 138, 39, um, If You Find Me by the Ocean. Um, that's an alternative antiphon, not all that common, but an alternative alt- antiphon to 139. And what does that hearken to? Obviously, St. Patrick standing by the seaside, looking across to Ireland and hearing the voice of the Irish um, and, uh, and and finding that there's no escape from the vocational call. So um, that's a psalm of comfort, but it's also a psalm that says, um, you know, my thoughts and my desires and you're with me wherever I go. That's a very strong vocational um, aspect to it as well. The second one is called Simply Easter Day, and the text is Gerard Manley Hopkins. Now, I think just a little, uh, a little um, anecdote for that. From my office, I'm sitting here right now, and I'm looking out to my right, and there is Newman House. And on the fifth floor is where Gerard Manley Hopkins, the great Jesuit poet, that's where he passed away so i can literally see i'm like in the bosom of irish catholicism from my office and i can look out and see where hopkins was and that's a poem that is just in my mind just a, a really haunting beautiful uh thing and so what i decided to do is to set it up um in the shannos style and what that means is that a vocalist will have lots of little ornamentations a little bit like a um a little bit like a, a tin whistle. And, and then it, it, the piece grows and grows. And it's, it's actually accompanied by SATB choir, but also by, um, the ball run, the Irish drum. We were really fortunate on that recording to work with a, another choir that's just down the road from us. Um, University College Dublin, UCD choral scholars joined us for that recording. And the soloist is actually from UCD choral scholars. So it's a, it's a, an interesting take. On a beloved poem from a Jesuit poet who is obviously world renowned, but I don't know of any other musical setting of Easter Day by Hopkins. So this advances the repertoire and it gets a chance to kind of let people dig in a little bit to the Irish, the Irish palette of sound.
2: Break the box and shed the night. Stop not now to count the cost, hither bring pearl opals sard wreck not
1: of course, is that um, I think the album is now in the GIA spring catalog as well. So I owe you a pint, Amanda, for a free. Uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> so you're going to have to take take me up on that when you get over here. So
0: Okay. I, yeah. I would be happy to. I would be happy to. Well, Steve, is there anything else you want to touch on before we start to wrap up here?
1: Well, um, you could say to all the listeners, Bien la uh, Blessed St. Patrick's Day to everybody. It's a huge feast, and it's a feast that really does celebrate diversity. And if you go back to the roots with the human trafficking condition of Patrick, there's a lot of things to build on in terms of contemporary society. Um, so for everybody that's working on a St. Patrick's Day liturgy, know that we are united to you in prayer and in song. And i um, We'll be thinking of all of you from the heart of Dublin here on St. Stephen's Green.
0: And we will be thinking of you, Steve, as you continue your work in the church in Ireland.
1: Thank you. Great to talk with you, Amanda, as always.
0: Thanks so much to Stephen for his time and for the privilege to premiere two of his songs. We are praying for you, Steve, as you prepare for the Feast of St. Patrick this week. The text of Easter Day, along with album details, will be provided in the show notes of this episode on our website, ministrymonday.org. Our theme music was written and produced by Aaron Shouse. The recording of Psalm 39, If You Find Me, and Easter Day were written by Stephen C. Warner and produced by GIA Publications. They will be released in spring 2020 on the album Easter in Ireland. Today's episode was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's all for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday.